Hey ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. This week features another awesome guest by the name of Dr. Rob Fazio. You'll join us for a great conversation on how to mentally prepare yourself, your house, and your business to reach the next level as the world returns to a new normal. But first, a little background on our guest. Rob started as a sports psychologist, but now focuses on leadership in the C-suite of America and most recently helped hospitals and healthcare systems throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. His company is On Point Advising, which can be found at onpointadvising.com, and he's the author of a few books, Simple is the New Smart, The Motivation Currency Calculator, and an upcoming book, Bullyproof, Using the Subtle Strength to Influence Alphas. His advice on navigating turbulent times in politics has been featured in the New York Times and on CNN, Fox News Channel, in MSNBC. Rob is also the founder of the nonprofit Hold the Door for Others. Without further ado, let's dive into a great conversation. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. Looking forward to talking with you. It's my pleasure. I'm sure we have a, a lot to talk about here, considering your background and just kind of what the world's going through over the past year is, uh, I know you keep hearing that word unprecedented, but it seems like every week's got something new for you in store. Yeah, right. Nothing like a Delta COVID curveball. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I'm like, fingers crossed we don't go backwards, but uh, the news right now, it's not looking all too promising, so... We'll have to play yeah. that by ear, I guess. Well, yeah, we'll see. There, one of the, my favorite people to follow is uh, uh, Dr. Gottlieb on CNBC. He seems to be really fact based, and um, he's saying hopefully mid August is a peak, and then we start getting more towards herd immunity. So, so I'm just going to put my head in the sand and, and go with that. <laughs> <laughs> that works for me. So, what have you been up to throughout this whole, you know, pandemic? Because it does seem like you were, you know kind of built for this moment in a way with, with, you know, your areas of expertise. So, I mean, how are you helping folks? Yeah. You know, there definitely was a, a synergy of, of skill sets and also uh, interests of mine. Uh, and I've been doing a number of different things, you know, in normal times I'm out on the road and advising and speaking. So this is, is definitely a shift. Uh, but this has been such a consistent crisis for so many executives and business leaders, uh, they needed some different approaches on, on how to stay focused uh, as well as really stay connected to their, their employees. And I've been doing a lot of, so right, right in the beginning, a few hospitals reached out to me to help out with, with staff around the mental toughness side. You know, a lot of these hospitals are repurposing surgeons, people that are highly skilled at, at doing one thing. And then the next thing you know, they're being asked to use respirators. Uh, so it was leveraging a lot of the sports psychology and, and, and crisis stuff. Um, and I think what the, the coolest thing has been is, is to be able to see people find strength and growth in, in different ways they never saw before. Um, you know, for every business that struggled, there's a business that has flourished so I, I really enjoy hearing those stories and then, you know, seeing what type of people step up and, and how they do that in these tough times. 
Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of inspiration that has come out of this. And what, as you, you consult with a lot of these different organizations, what are you finding might be um, some of the major hurdles, especially as you ask somebody like a surgeon, you know, hey, put down what you're used to doing every day, and we've got to kind of redefine your role for a minute. You know, what are some of, I guess, the resistances or, or issues that you've run into with that? So a lot of high performing people, surgeons, um, executives, a lot of them are learned and, and internalized the message of always have the answer and don't ever let them see a chink in the armor. I, I have one client who talked about his training was like, grab a sword and a shield and just start, you know, just start going. So I think that what has, um, what has really been important is a shift towards what I call ego agility, right? Having calm confidence, but realizing when there is lack of clarity, lack of control, and also lack of, of resources for a lot of these, these companies, you're not always going to have the answers and you have to leverage your talent and the people around you. And I think what happens when, when executives admitted they may not have all the answers or, or a surgeon admits I'm not comfortable in this role. Other people do step up um, with that transparency and, and want to be supportive and, and you'll see other people rise to the occasion. That's interesting. And, and do you find a lot of parallels with like your experience in sports and even to take a step back, can you just kind of clue some of our listeners into what exactly you've done in the past as a quote unquote sports psychologist? Yeah. So I, that was my first, you know, my first career working with athletes on different levels and in different capacities. Uh, and I, two main areas I worked in one is in what you would typically think around performance excellence. How do you get someone to perform their best in the worst of times, you know, their, their mindset, their concentration focus. Uh, and then the other one was I did a lot of work around, using sports to build life skills and confidence in at-risk and inner-city youth. Um, and I think what I've, you know, what I found, what I learned there is um, there are a lot of parallels between a, a sports performance and a business performance. But one of the biggest differences, Brian, is in sports, you are expecting instant feedback on win-lose and what to do differently. I think in business, people are less open to that immediate feedback because it's a different culture. Hmm. Interesting. It's it kind of unique you brought that up or convenient because I had a few uh, NFL, former NFL players on the show. And awesome. that's what they said leading into last season is like, you're kind of groomed as an athlete to perform for that applause. And that last year when just crowds were completely removed, it was like, how are some of these top-notch athletes going to perform when there is no celebration, you know, at the end of that play or that dunk or whatever it might be? I know they did a lot of that kind of synthetic crowd noise, um, yeah. but it is a shift when all of a sudden it's like, you know, the, the 10,000 screaming fans aren't right there. And really, you're kind of performing for you and your team at that point. Absolutely. I mean, I think that has been a big challenge for a lot of athletes uh, across sports and, and, and missing that and that where there's that lack of kind of um, contagious emotion uh, as well, as well as 
you know, you don't know which way the crowd is going to, to shift. So it leaves some of that kind of intermittent reinforcement, right? So it's like, if I do something good and I get cheered and then I do something good again and I don't, I'm not really sure what's going on. So that, that whole liveliness of a crowd, I think is critical to performance. Definitely, definitely. And you felt that that wasn't really a hurdle in the business sense because there's not such a, I guess, a need for that, that instantaneous recognition. You know, so it's interesting. I would say it depends on the function. I think that um, I've had a lot of conversations with people in the sales industry where it's been really challenging, right? Very driven people, very focused on their audience, right? Influencing people, getting feedback, meeting with them. So you could equate that that sales experience to having a crowd, whereas they no longer had the crowd. It was more of kind of the one-on-ones and, and things like that. So I think that was a big shift in, in sales. Um, you know, and, and I think that, um, it really does depend on, on the, the individual. Um, some people kind of like the isolation or, or being home. Um, I felt that way in the beginning. I think we're at a point now where people are so fatigued and, and to some extent burnt out, they just want human interaction and they want to be able to get back to that you know, interacting with people, uncovering needs and um, the, the fun part of business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even myself, I know I've, I've struggled with it where so much of my work as a financial advisor is doing seminars and workshops. And it was just kind of like, as soon as we had this whole quarantine go into effect, all of those things became these new Zoom webinars, which was brand yeah. new to me. And I was like, you know, I'm sitting here talking for 20 minutes into a, a webinar to what could just be like a black screen on my computer. And I'm like, anybody there, anybody, you know, enjoying this right now, or how are we doing? And yes. That, that is so difficult to kind of gauge that interest. So, so, you know, this better than me, but they're bigger shift in wealth management, right. In the war for talent, all these shifts and some of it COVID is really impacting because some of the bigger financial financial institutions have higher regulations and they don't know when they're ever going to be able to sit down with a client. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of people move around in the industry and yeah, that whole keeping that connection, right? Now's the time when you need your financial advisor the most, right? Because so many sure. people's plans have shift, shifted. Oh yeah. Yep. And I think you run into a lot of the, the generational dynamics where at least my experience is kind of proved, I think the well-known point, pretty valid that dealing with millennials, some younger professionals, they're kind of fine with that. They're like, yeah, I don't need to shake your hand. Um, but certainly a lot of my baby boomer clients, they're yearning for that. And they're yeah. apprehensive with, you know, wait, you've got all my money and we're not even getting to meet each other or have coffee. And uh, there's, there's some certain things over there that are definitely, uh, you know, people want to get back to normal for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely think that there's different, you know, generational um, changes and, and what's, you know, what's important. Um, yeah. I, there's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on there, but I think we're getting to a point where the majority of people are, I just want to get back to, and it might be a hybrid situation, but they want some type of interaction. Definitely. Yeah, I'm one of those people. Sure. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm not even in the bucket of hybrid. I mean, I'm I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I haven't been on a plane. I haven't been on a plane in 17 months, and I've got a a nine month old and a and a five year old. So I, you know, I'm ready. Give me a mask. I'm hopping on. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I wanted to ask you, in, in your bio, I had mentioned um, something you created called the Motivational Currency Calculator. What, what exactly is that? What is motivational currency? Yeah, so, you know, um, much of my work is in the finance industry. And pre-2008, um, I would go around to different banks internationally and talk about motivation. And people would be like, who cares, right? We pay people here. That's what we do. And then once we had that financial crisis, it shifted where people needed a way to engage people and, and motivate them in, in different ways. And so um, I leveraged a lot of the work from uh, a Harvard psychologist, David McClellan, on what's called social motives. So we all have something inside of us that, that drives us. And usually there's a primary driver. And the way it works is any situation or conversation, we're going to get pulled in a certain direction. And so motivational currency, there's, there's four motivators. There's performance, people, power, and purpose. And performance is all about results and achievement. People is about relationships and harmony. Power is about influence and persuasion. And then purpose is about something for the greater good, some type of meaning. And usually everyone has a primary motivator. And so the whole idea is you want to be able to recognize the motivators in yourself, read them in other people, and then lead in a way that is aligned with other people's motivators with the idea of if you're speaking someone's language and you know what drives them, they are more likely to let you influence them. Okay. So you're saying as a, an employer or a leader or an organization, you want to identify one of those four kind of trigger points for that employee or whoever your uh, kind of protege is. I think it, I think it works always. Like if you want to influence your boss or if you want to influence or, or under, better understand a client looking through it through that lens by based on the things that they talk about, how they interact with you, um, understanding what drives them gives you a much better chance at being successful at, at engaging them, connecting with them, making them more motivated towards what you're talking about. Got it. And if you have, does that just come through experience, would you say, or, or do you have maybe kind of a, um, a, a tip or piece of advice for let's say that young professional that's like, Hey, I've got a new boss or I got a new big client that came on and I can't really find out of those four features or dynamics or traits, what makes them tick, like which category they fall into. Do you have some yes. kind of quick identifier? Uh, so the, the, it takes some time and experience. So there are, there are tips um, and cues. So for example, someone who's performance oriented, often talks about timelines or results or, or numbers. Um, they're always talking about agendas. Uh, someone who's people-oriented really um, tends to talk about uh, emotions, tends to talk about the team getting along and more of collective, um, collective types of success. And then someone who is power-oriented they often give their point of view. They're often trying to advise you on something. And then someone who is purpose-oriented, they're often talking about um, the, the overall good or something that is, that is meaningful. 
And to take that a step further, there is there is an assessment that I uh, that I created to help you identify motivators in yourself, and then there's a skill based component and how to read it in other people and um, and lead it. And there's um there's a, a bunch of free articles and and tips on my my website where people can if they want to learn more about it can can do that. Okay, that's great. You know, as we're having this conversation, I'm even thinking with my practice, and and you get you know, at this point now, I've been doing it about 13 years, you have such kind of an array of clients, and you group them, you know, based on asset size and all these different things. But um, that would almost be an interesting way to have a kind of a new classification too of those four different categories, and perhaps send out articles or things like that, that appeal to the, the greater good people versus the high performance people and so on. You, you got it. So that's one of the biggest mistakes I see is, especially with marketing or newsletters, it's like, oh, here's really important information. And then a wealth manager will send out a deck to their clients, the same deck to everyone. But if you know yep. someone, all they care about is passing down money to their children, right? And protecting their wealth. Well, that's more of a purpose orientation. So you need to anchor with that first. It doesn't mean you don't get to your performance metrics. It's just you lead with what you think the primary motivator is. Yeah. And I think that just takes time and, and organization. You know, it's yeah. easy to send out that mass newsletter to 13,000 people and <laughs> to it, then say, well, well, let's make some groups here. But yeah, it gets yeah. It, some it, effort there. It, it absolutely is an investment. Or you just you just pick a select few that you think there's a high probability of success. And in the email, it's personalized with something around their primary motivator. Okay, gotcha. And so now a lot of people, I'm glad we kind of went over there because that's a nice launch pad to, you know, how are we getting better performing companies? And now I think the business world wants to get back to normal, like we've discussed. How can businesses really best prepare now for a reopening after COVID, assuming that we are kind of through the woods, out of the woods, and, and we are ready to reopen now? Yeah, so I think that it's it is a partnership between the employees and the employers. And there's something that's going on right now which is interesting on the psychological contract between employee and employer. And and it's almost been polarizing where employees would be like, well, it's the employer's job to give us this or not or only let us come in 2 days a week or not. And then employers are kind of starting to feel handcuffed because no matter what decision they make, there's a population of employees they are going to upset, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think it's a matter of better preparing leaders to have a lot of different conversations where there's a range of emotions, making sure that you're understanding you're understanding your people and what their perspectives are. I think it's really important that employees have a voice and there's some action taken on some of the voice so that there's there's some agency there from from employees uh, I think that you know reinforcing that it's a fluid situation and that while you know people used to always be a fan make a decision and stick with it um, and I think it's kind of like you know it used to be like unfreeze change refreeze now it's like unfreeze, change, and refrigerate because we don't know what's going to happen. So setting the expectation that things might might shift again um, and, and being okay with that, uh, I think is important. I, I also think things, simple things like 
finding your employees that are resourceful around some of these topics that may create anxiety or be challenging and have people do some some micro learning videos, you know, two minutes or less on their best tips or sharing stories. Um, so building that community approach to the reopening, as opposed to feeling like something is being done to me. Okay. And what do you think, you know, some of the, at least with your experience are some of the things that I guess these employees really want to spend some time focusing on where, like you said, it used to be, Hey, we'll just pay you. That's your motivation. Now get to work. What is it maybe right now that's motivating and inspiring the workforce? Well, of course, the, the biggest thing now is uh, purpose and meaning in the work is um, almost more of a topic of conversation on a daily basis than the, the, the business metrics. So that constant reinforcement of, you know, how what the company is doing in some ways providing a service to society, uh, you know, doing social good, I think is important. Um, I, I also think that, you know, having a realization that there is another war for talent right now. And right now there are a lot of options for, for employees. And uh, I think that's a tricky one because you want, you want to be flexible, but you don't want to be so flexible that it's negatively impacting the business. And um, also for employers, you know, there's a lot of conversation around the great resignation. If an employee doesn't get what they want, they're going to quit um, and do something else. And you have to realize that everything you do and make a career move impacts your brand in some way, shape or form. Um, and a lot of these industries are small. So you just got to realize if you do leave, You've got to leave on very good terms um, and realize the next place you go to, you not, may not be sure what you're getting into. Um, so being really good at that. And same thing with an organization, realizing any decision made during a crisis tends to live in the DNA of the business and the organization. So choose wisely, communicate effectively, be very people-oriented as you're being business-oriented. Sure, sure. And I think that, just to kind of delve a little bit into kind of a similar topic that's going on right now. I meet with small business owners all the time. And one of the gripes that they're having, which is really no secret is finding quality talent and employees today, because what I've heard a lot with, you know, stimulus checks, enhanced unemployment, tax credit, all these new kind of uh, perks that are going on since we've had COVID is that not only are they competing against competitors, but they're also competing against people in the government that are just being able to kind of say, well, you know, I don't want to take that job because I'm doing pretty darn good right now staying at home. Or it's just kind of a common, uh, you know, complaint that I hear. How do you see people dealing with that? Is the pendulum going to swing where all of a sudden that's going to go away and people are going to get shocked? Like, oh my gosh, I need a job and now I can't pick my job. Like, you wonder how this is all going to play out. You raise a very uh, valid and important point. Right now, psychologically, what we're doing is we're supporting people um, and saying, hey, we're going to take care of you. At, at some, And that's going on. Another thing that's going on psychologically is a lot of business people and executives 
are feeling like they can't lead for fear of doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing and losing more employees. So there's that pressure. Um, Unfortunately, what I feel like is at some point, there's going to be a boiling point. I don't know how far down the road, um, but when certain things uh, end up, when there's less forgiveness, when there's less financial support, maybe when the market is as hot and also businesses get to a point of like, okay, we, we, we can't do any more. We're not being profitable or, or what have you. I do think that there's going to be a, a shift. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's not as um, intense as I'm, I'm sensing it will be. In, in the meantime, I mean, do you have any recommendations, psychologically speaking, based on what you're seeing? Because I've heard everyone from companies that employ lifeguards where the owner of the agency is having you run stand to stand just to kind of put a body up there because there's such a shortfall here on the shore to, you know, people that own uh, restaurants and uh, fast food franchises that are saying, you know, I'm got to hop in the back of the kitchen to bread the chicken yeah. because we just don't have enough people here. Is there, I, I mean, what would you say to them to, to kind of get them through what kind of feels like a storm of sorts, even though it's not really here, but just simply because they can't employ. Oh, it, it, it is. It definitely is. I think the first thing I would say, thank you. Thank you for keeping America running. Um, the second thing I would say is that um, this is, this is temporary. So if you're able to weather this, treat your people well, you know, get through it, reward and reinforce the people that are hanging in there with you and um, and when and make sure that when things do get better, they're recognized and, and rewarded. Um, and I, I think the acknowledgement of like, yes, this is a really tough situation. And I think that paying attention to yourself. So, you know, leadership starts with self-leadership, which is making sure you're practicing self-care, make sure you're stockpiling positive experiences for yourself um, and doing things that help buffer some of the negative impact of, of burnout. Okay. Interesting. So some self-reflection and kind of focus Um, on the self in a way. Well, self-reflection combined with action. So, you know, just reflecting can be helpful, but you also have to have active stress management techniques, right? Going places, doing things, um, you know, exercise, learning something new, taking on a new challenge outside of your work, uh, you know, related to work. Um, You know, really, I think that um, reciprocity is huge. So, you know, if there's something you could help out with another business with, see if you could do that. And then maybe you can get help. Um, there's a great thing that's been popularized by, um, Adam Grant at Wharton called a reciprocity ring, which is, you know, you make a list of things that you could help people with. I'm sorry. You make a list of things of things that you might need help with. So you get a group. I might need help with, finding, you know, lifeguards from this time to this time, or I might want to do something like this. And then you share that list and then everyone signs up with something they could help each other out with. And it just deepens relationships and kind of spreads out the, the stress of the the tough situations. Okay. So essentially don't, don't be afraid to ask for some help during this whole time. No, I, I think that, you know, getting, getting help for the, the business is a smart thing. And I, I, the, the key is you've also got to be willing to help in some way. 
And then help could just be yeah. that you're a sounding board or you give some people, you know, give someone some advice. Definitely. Definitely. And just kind of maybe on the other side of that coin with, let's say we've got a business owner, whatever profession that the individual's in, and they feel like they're just kind of on cruise control to the point where maybe some of those concerns that people work towards are no longer a concern. Maybe they do feel financially independent, or maybe they feel like they've had the impact that they wanted to uh, on a, a certain you know, area of the economy. Once they get to kind of that point of like, you know what, I, I checked these boxes and now I just feel like I'm kind of waking up and I'm just going to the desk. How do you overcome some of that complacency? Uh, do you find a lot of professionals kind of in that, that category that are, I don't want to say bored, but they just feel like they've kind of done what they've had to do and they're just comfortable to a point of stalling? I don't see many of those. Um, I don't see many of, uh, of those type of people. Now, we, you know, I used to use a term um, retired in place, right? Someone gets to a certain level that maybe that's what you're talking to, where they're kind of just going, you know, going through the motions. I don't necessarily think that's that is a bad thing as long as it's transparent and both the organization and the individual are aware of that. So, th- you know, um, I, I would never underestimate how important it is just to have consistent work, right? So as long as they're doing consistent work, they may not get the the rewards or the benefits of others. And as long as they're not being a detractor, then that's okay, right? Um, and I, you know, now I think the other thing too is having conversations around: Do you want to be challenged in different ways, right? Um, and I think that that's you know that's important, but. It's there's a um, there's a difference between complacency and consistency, right? As long as someone's consistent and they're not cynical, then I'm okay with that. Okay, okay, but I I like that term kind of retired in place because I I have seen it even with peers of mine that they've reached a level with their practice that they're that they don't have financial worry. And they're like, you know what? I already made all of those clubs. I already got all the different plaques and all the awards. And I'm just kind of, like you said, kind of going through the motions. You know, is it time to move on to something else? Or do you find ways to kind of dig down and find a new bit of inspiration in the well? Or It, it, It depends on what's needed. As long as as long as they're not doing harm and creating dysfunction and they're still performing at an acceptable level, that's okay. I think that you need a certain amount of people that are, that are contributing. Now that's different than den weight or people that aren't. Um, but some things that, that it could be that you could tap into is, you know, legacy. Um, do you want to mentor others to get to, to the level that you are at, right? Trying to get them to help the younger emerging talent. Um, I would try to get them involved in some of those things. Okay. Okay. Interesting. All right. That's, that's great. And anything, um, you know, that you want to spend some time on while we're on kind of the whole business topic, as far as advice that you have for people who are trying to be better leaders right now, um, whether it be COVID related or just kind of general uh, mantras that you've adhered to even in normal times. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, one of the very, I see, uh, underutilized skill set is um, 
creating an environment that is enjoyable at work. So there's a whole host of literature on the power of humor and laughter and, and how it equate, how it equates to productivity um, and even research around variable comp where people who are perceived to have a good sense of humor tend to ha- make higher, um, get higher incentives in, in their variable comp. So I think that it's not that you have to be a comedian, but if you're in a position to lead, making work have a little bit more levity to it, making sure it's okay for people to, to have fun conversations. I think we've, we've gone so far to being so strict around things. Um, people need somewhat of a break and, and need to have that, that connection to people through using, um, through using humor and, and having some fun conversations. Uh, yeah, I like that. I think everybody over this past year is just wound so tight. Oh, yeah, and, totally. <laughs> I mean, we're living in like the, I feel like this is like the era of sensitivity where it's like anything you say or don't say, it could be construed the wrong way and, and used against you. And it, I mean, it's almost like everybody's just walking on eggshells. And uh, it, I mean, that's a whole nother topic that we could get into. <laughs> it, it is, it is. So I, I, I am seeing a lot of executives that will literally say, I feel like I, I'm, I'm in fear of leading because I might say the wrong thing. Uh, I might, you know, hit someone's trigger, you know? So I, I think that it's, it's tricky, but I think that what has to happen is um, if something is triggered, you know, um, if you're not the person that's triggered and you're not the person that created the trigger, you need to help play some role in de-escalating the situation, right? And trying to have some conversation around it. Um, and um, I think that's really important. And, and we've got a long way to go around having some more candid dialogues and, and um, overt conversations uh, because people are shying away from the conversations because they may not know how to have them or they're afraid that they're going to say something that's going to end their career. And in that same vein, I mean, do you think in this, I don't mean to sound crass, but do you think there's a point where the world almost has to look at its people and kind of say like, all right, maybe we need to toughen up just a little bit because it it's, it's like kind of where, where do you draw that line of, like you said, a business owner or a leader feeling worried and fearful. Like I want to tell somebody X, Y, or Z to make them better, but I'm afraid if I say that I could be construed as this, that, or the other. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? You've been in sports. I mean, I grew up playing football, played football in college and there just wasn't that sort of sensitivity. It's like, here's what you need to do, (laughs) get it together or, you know, start running some laps in not such, you know, nice language. But yeah, I just uh, it's it boggles my mind sometimes, you know. Well, so there's a couple of things I play. First of all, there there's no place for berating someone or demeaning them. And I think the problem is there are a lot of narcissists in the business world that have r- risen up by being bullies and pushing people around. So let's put that aside and let's sure. deal with healthy human beings. Yep. Um, I I think that we're doing a disservice to people by not giving direct feedback and by not advising people and correcting the behaviors. And I, I think a place to start is calling out your intention. Brian, the reason I want to talk to you about this is 
I want to help you be better. And here's how I think you can be better going forward. Try this. You're always open to have a conversation with me. And I think that if there is, you can get someone in a place to understand that you're on their team. Um, So I always have this mantra in mind, same team, right? Make sure they know you're on the same team. Um, They're more likely to accept the guidance and feedback. Another caveat to that is um, there, the ambitions I believe need to be a combination of self, other, business, and social. So I'm ambitious. I want to be successful. I want other people to be successful in my team. So I'm looking out for them. I want the business to be successful. So I'm looking at the financial health of what we're doing. And I also want to do social good. If you could look across those four things and be able to communicate that you're motivated by those, I think people are more, it's going to be much tougher for someone to push back or be wounded by the counsel you're giving. Got it. So kind of lead with, like you said, we're all on the same team here. And then you can kind of drop some of the, uh, you know, the advice, whether it's, you know, constructive or, you know, maybe sometimes hard to hear. Yes. And keeping yourself and other people in check, right? It's fine. We want people that are ambitious and we want people that want to be successful um, as well as people who want to support other people's success and pay attention to the business collectively and pay attention to doing social good. Got it. Got it. Okay. And now we did mention before that you have a, a new book coming out kind of along the lines of what we just said, it's called Bullyproof and using subtle strength to influence alphas. What's, what's all that about? I think maybe we just kind of led into that a bit. Yeah, we did. So not by design, uh, but over the past 20 years, I developed a, a niche of working with very strong, powerful people and, um, Actually, my wife pointed this out to me. She's like, you know, you've kind of developed a, an approach based on your experience and research to try to influence strong personalities. Um, I was always fascinated around like, how do you persuade someone in a position of power that has always been right and always gets their way? Um, and so I, I've really taken a deep dive in, in trying to figure that. And where I've come out on it is, people take the wrong approach dealing with dominant people. So dominance creates one of two things, more dominance or weakness. So if I, if I dominate you, you're either going to stop talking to me or avoid me, or you're going to try to fight me. And I, I, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people say, you know, um, if you get punched by a bully, punch him back in the face, right? Worst advice in the world. Because a boxer might be a better boxer than you, and, and you, then you're playing in their territory. So there, I developed this whole process around how to depersonalize the experience you're in and to try to change the interaction with the strong personality because they're not used to people being empathetic and understanding of their situation and aligning with them um, before you try to influence them. Okay. So this is, I'm sure this is kind of new to a lot of people. Like you said, the bully or the boxer in this instance punches you in the face and you essentially say, don't punch back because you're kind of playing into their realm now. So are you suggesting that you kind of lead that, that power personality into maybe another area of conversation or debate? 
Yeah. So there's a few things. So when, when, when someone's in fight mode, you don't want to be fighting with them, but you want to try to do is, is deescalate. And so I use the term subtle strength, which is, you know, you, you want to intentionally influence using calm confidence that demonstrates backbone and respect. So um, it might be something where you let them know what you agree with certain aspects of theirs. And then you say, you know, I wonder if we could have a conversation about this, you know, next time or something like that. That That's one thing. The, the second thing is there are different types of alphas. So what we're typically talking about is that the non-adaptive, unaware alpha, someone who is, you know, really pushy, isn't a, doesn't have a good self-awareness, doesn't realize their impact on others and they don't adapt. Um, but there are also aware adaptive alphas, which are really strong personalities that have good intentions, good interpersonal skills and creating alliances with those types of leaders are really important because they neutralize the, the people that are the perceived bullies or the non-adaptive alphas. Okay. That's interesting. Cause it, what just kind of came to mind, frankly, is, you know, our prior president, Trump, whether you love him or you hate him. You said it. You said it. Uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, we, we just, we out. just, we just, we, we just lost 5,000 listeners. Yeah. And gained 5, listeners. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, talk about one of the biggest love-hate personas of all time. Yeah. Um, it, that's just one thing that as great as he is at some things, he could make just a blatant mistake that, oops, it was just kind of a, a brain fart that, that we all do. But it was like you would never see him say, no, I didn't, I, I, I didn't make a mistake there. Like, th- it yeah. just seemed like there was that inability to be like, oops, my bad. Let's move right on. Is yeah. that sort of what you're kind of getting at is like how to someone that's at that echelon, the highest of, of business, of politics, et cetera, they're just used to be being told yes. And yeah. sometimes you, you can't say yes to something exactly and then you've got to be careful and there and there are extremes right but what happens is when people are behaving out of fear as opposed to respect there's a timeline to that and then most people if you bully them or dominant enough they're either going to leave the situation or they're going to find a way to get you back right and kind of creates this cycle of of dysfunction um, so it is, you know, it is a very, a very tricky thing. Now, I, I also believe that if, you know, someone is so dysfunctional and they're creating so much, um, uh, beyond frustration, you know, they're manipulative, they're creating suffering in the workplace. Um, that person needs to be invited to a different, uh, career. Like that just, there's, there's just, too many people suffer. And I think this comes from my, I saw my dad work for a CFO in New York City for, for years that was manipulative. And my dad would never complain about it. My mom would, but he would never complain about it. But you could see it on his face. And he did that for like 26 years. And that takes a toll on people, right? He had an open, you know, he had a quadruple bypass and he was just always stressed out. And people shouldn't have to live in those situations, especially in today's day and age where we have choices. So if you're a person in, in a position of power and there's someone who is quote unquote successful, but they've got character flaws um, and, or they're a bully um, realize that they may be nice to you because you're at the same level, but they're creating such trauma for people on a daily basis um, that that's not okay. 
Well said, well said. And that might have been perhaps a part of your why, but I did want to ask you kind of what led into this work of, of whether it be sports psychology or psychology in general, what got yeah. you to this point in life? Yeah, I think that story I just told you about my dad was was part of it. Yeah. So being around New York executives all the time and kind of just feeling feeling that. Matter of fact, my dad uh, gave me a, a book years ago. Um, it was something called like how to manage and control people. And that was like their training up and coming. And it was all about control and coercion, um, which is crazy, right? We're, we're supposed to be the opposite that uh, we realized. Yeah. The other thing that I think has been really impactful is I grew up as a overweight, incredibly anxious kid with no confidence. So I would be afraid of conversations with people. I was always intimidated. I, I shied away from sports and I, I missed a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, I wasn't a tremendous athlete, but I was good enough to play, you know, at different levels. And I, I just psyched myself out. So I got to the point where at first was, I don't want to live this way anymore. And so I went into sports psychology really to learn about confidence. And, and then it became a, a mission of mine of, gosh, if I could work myself through this, I bet you I could help a lot of people uh, around this. And then I started doing sports psychology in the business world. And that kind of, um, you know, caught on for me. So I, I find the work intriguing because I'm learning all different business models, interacting with smart people and influencing people that don't want to be influenced. Hmm. That's, yeah, there's so much there to kind of take in. <laughs> and if, if, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, you know, what, as you started to study all of this, what led you from kind of that, that shy kid that felt like you, you lacked confidence to where you're at now, was there something that you said, Hey, right here, I can pinpoint that that's what I need to work on. Was there some exercise that got you from point A to point B? Yeah, I think there's, there's a few things. One of them was um, really being aware of the simple things like self-talk. So one of the biggest skills that, that changed my life is based um, in cognitive behavior therapy by a guy named Albert, Albert Ellis, which essentially is you realize that there are, it's ABC, there are activating events, there are beliefs and there's consequences. And, and more times than not, we think the event creates the consequence, but it's not. It's our belief about the event or the situation that creates the consequence. So really training myself to be able to reframe situations and not let myself go down an emotional negative snowball of feelings and thoughts about myself or situations. Um, that was that was a big one. Um, I think that just um, seeing in myself and other people that, you know, you can, you can build your confidence by being really selective about what you listen to. So it might, <laughs> my wife gets so mad at me. She's the chair of the communication department at uh, TCNJ. And she, um, I wrote a chapter in my book that is called um, listening is bad for your health. And she cringes every time I talk about it, <laughs> but it, it's all about realizing how many messages we've internalized from parents, people, um, other colleagues when we're, we're going up and, and these things tend to stick. So for example, growing up, I learned 
that I wasn't smart. I wasn't intelligent. Um, I was told not to bother to apply for doctorate programs because I wouldn't get in. And that created insecurities in me around intelligence. And once you are able to use your insecurities as motivation, they really weigh you down and hold you back. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting way to kind of, uh, it, it's, it's so hard because you're inundated with, with viewpoints and opinions, like you said, that I can see that chapter title, why it may turn your wife off. There's definitely a lot of validity to it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And I think that goes a lot with that old saying, you know, change the way you look at things and the things you look at will change. Yes. You know, a lot of it's kind of how you, it's all in the interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's that. And I think the other thing that was helpful to me is, um, my expectation is that things are going to go wrong at some point, right? There's always something that's going to happen. Um, I think we have this fantasy, at least in America, that we actually have control over things and, and we don't. All we can do is prepare and, and put ourselves in, in good places, support our families. Um, but there's always going to be shifts and changes. Um, and we've just got to be really good at, at, at getting getting through those, looking at them as, as growth opportunities, and then getting on to the next thing. Interesting. And so this is, this has been great. I really do appreciate, you know, the advice that you've laid out here. One of the things I know my listeners love is oftentimes when we do have a guest on the show, we'll finish with a lightning round, uh, with just some okay. kind of rapid fire questions, just to get to know you better, kind of, um, kind of pick apart what makes you, you, you tick every day. Uh, you okay if we dive into that? Yeah. So I'm going to be like, kind of like Jim Cramer here. We'll go for it. Nice. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. All right. All right. So first one up here, what is your favorite book? My favorite book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Yeah, what a classic that is. Total That's classic. Cool. Really easy to apply. Yep. Yep. And uh, what's your favorite movie? Something about Mary. Just the humor in it. Just it's solid. Yeah. 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 That's a fun one. And how much do you usually sleep at night? Huh. So if you asked me this question a month ago, I would say I don't. But the, the eight month to nine month with the baby has shifted. So I would say I try to shoot for eight hours because I know it's important, but I probably get around seven. Okay. All right. And again, this is a bit of a finance show at times. What would you say is the best investment you've made? Uh, could be monetary or otherwise. I'll give you two answers. The, the best investment um, I made, number one, is uh, in myself, meaning working on my self-development um, to get myself in a place where I could help other people be successful. I think number two would be uh, Sirius Radio. So it was my first stock I ever bought. It was right before... Um, it was either going to go bankrupt. And I think it went down to like five cents or something. So I just threw, I don't know, like 500 bucks into it. And it allowed me to buy my wife's engagement ring years later. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's a great story. And on the flip side, can you pinpoint a worst investment that you ever made? Yeah, let's see. Worst investment I've made. I've definitely made a lot of bad ones. Um I, I've had several investments in, in the restaurant industry and being that it's a cash business and you really don't have line of sight into what's going on. Um, 
I've, I've lost a good amount of money in some and, and done well in some. So those are some bad investments. Um, I think, um, you know, it's tough because I, I look at investment losses as like, I'm always able to rationalize the lessons learned, which I know is, is cliche. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. but I've, you know, what else did I, uh, well, right now, Fannie Mae is one of my worst investments. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. So we got, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm still holding on like I'm dollar costing average. So it goes to nothing and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it's funny though. The, the restaurant one is one I've heard a lot. And it's, uh, it's kind of like some people strike gold with it and that's what they were built for. And a lot of others, um, you just, like you said, you don't always know what you're getting into until you're in it. And then like, what do you do from there? Yeah. There's like a five-year horizon and and in the beginning, it feels so good. I feel like a lot of restaurateurs hang on too long to a concept, hoping that a PE firm is going to come buy it out or something. And, you know, um, and then, and then staff gets stale and the new restaurant opens up down the block, you know, it's tough. Yeah, definitely. It's a tough industry. And uh, growing up, did you have a childhood hero? Yeah, um, a, a couple. Um, one was Joe Montana. Um, I just loved okay. the way he was able to deal with stuff under pressure and crisis, right? And um, I, I don't know if you know the story, but in one of you know, the Super Bowls, they're down. I don't know. It's like a minute and 46 seconds and they're down a touchdown or whatever, but he gets in the huddle. And I think Guy McIntyre was the guard at the time. And, and he, and he looks over in the huddle and he goes, Hey guys, look, there's John Candy. Like, and just like <laughs> having a, you know, a regular conversation and throws a touchdown pass. And I, I just love that cool um, confidence. And I've always admired, uh, you know, yeah admired that um so he I was have, a, I, I, yep i have heard that story and that's um yeah i mean you talk about kind of ice running through your veins that's it right there yeah yeah so yeah. he was a he was a big one and another one is, was warren buffett i mean just the whole line of be fearful when people are greedy and be greedy when people are fearful i know it's so simplistic but it works mm-hmm. you know it does it does yeah it takes uh Take some guts to do that, but it's, those are good. I have a buddy who's a financial advisor and he's got a great line. He's like, the next time he tells his clients, next time you feel like throwing a brick through my window, because what happened in the market, patch a a check to it and we'll take care of it. (laughs) I like that one. I might have to steal that. (laughs) And uh, maybe the grand finale here. Do you have a a quote that you like to live by? Yeah. Uh, Henry Ford quote, uh, if you think you can, or if you think you can't, you're right. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. I like it. Yeah. Love it. All right. This has been great, Rob. I really appreciate it. Do you have any um, anything else that you'd like to, to leave with our listeners, whether it be final words of advice or where we can all find you? Sure. You can, you can find me on LinkedIn. I usually do a, a weekly micro learning thing there or at onpointadvising.com. And I think my final thought would be is um, I think that having conversations are great and so important. Um I'm really big on taking something away from the conversation and giving it something else. So if there's something that Brian or I said, or something that you found interesting or enjoyable, just share it with someone makes the world a more fun place. I like it. Well said. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and all of our listeners keep on tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this week. We'll be back again next week. So definitely leave a review, spread the good word, just like Rob said. And uh, this is your host, Brian Kaderna, signing off for another episode of the Kaderna podcast. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rob Fazio. 
We'll see you next week. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Coderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Coderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Coderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Coderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.